Well, good morning, Cross Point. It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for coming out and joining us to worship the God who is worthy of everything that we could possibly give him, worthy of any praise, of any, uh, any well, really, anything good that you could think of to say about someone, worthy of any of it. So, appreciate you joining us for that. I know that we just prayed, but um, I'd ask that you'd also just pray with me once more, so, uh, before we dive into God's word. Jesus, I do thank you for the chance to be with you and to be with your people. God, we pray that what goes forward is only something that is of you. That anything that I speak that may not be of you, God, that it would be forgotten immediately. But God, that your words, that they would go forth and they would do their work and they would create the life change that you desire in our hearts. God, we want you. We serve you. We love you. So let that be evidence as we dive into your word and as our hearts open to you. I pray that you would be moving powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we have been in a series, a series of David, right? The, the life of a king. When we started this a few weeks back, we actually started, though, with Saul, the king, before David. And Saul seemed like the guy. Of anyone in all of Israel, if you thought, who's going to be king? It's Saul, right? Literally, the second tallest person in Israel only came up to his shoulders. He was tall, he was strong, he was bold, he was handsome, he was everything people would want. With one massive problem, his heart was not fixed on God, but on himself and on his circumstances. And we saw bad choice after bad choice after bad choice ultimately led him to a one-way ticket off the throne of Israel. And God says, hey, I'm going to choose someone I want to be king. Someone, yeah, he's not perfect, but his heart is mine. We see him choose David. And if you were here with us last week, we talked about David and Goliath and how David conquered this giant, conquered Goliath, not because David is oh so amazing of a person, but God was with him. And if God is with you, there will always be victory in the battles that God fights. So now we pick up our story. In uh, chapter 18, uh, we're, uh, we're just going to fast track through a few of these chapters before we find our base camp in the text. But starting in chapter 18, you have the story of David coming back with Saul. And everyone is really excited. David just conquered Goliath. Israel took down the Philistines. Amazing! So people were so excited, they created a song. They started singing that David has slain his tens of thousands. And that part sounds really good. Except they also added, Saul has killed his thousands. Saul is thousands. David, tens of thousands. Saul hears this. He doesn't like it. He's like, I'm king. I was supposed to be getting all the, all the praise. What's going on? And starts getting jealous. Saul sends David out after battle, after battle, after battle, constantly comes back victorious. His popularity is only growing in all of the nation. His son, Jonathan, is now his best friend. His daughter, Michael, is now in love with him. Everyone loves David, except Saul. As David succeeds more and more, Saul just simply gets more fearful and more paranoid and more bitter and starts trying to take his life, not once, not twice, but several times. 
A lot of different ways. He tries setting him off into battle. Maybe that'll kill him. Nope. Oh, I'll get him set up with one of my daughters. Maybe that'll distract him. Then he'll die in battle. No. Oh, I'll send him off to go and like slaughter a few people, bring back some foreskins, a hundred of them, because that's impossible. David's like, okay, I'll bring back 200. Just doesn't die. Eventually, Saul just starts throwing spears at him, can't hit him. Saul throws more than one spear, multiple spears. You would think after the first one, David would have gotten the hint, but takes a few. And eventually, after the last time, David then takes off. He runs for home first, and his wife is like, oh, um, here, just go, climb out the window, hide. And she literally takes a bunch of pillows and things and makes a fake body in the bed and, and takes, like, some goat hair and pretends it's his hair. And so the soldiers come in, they're like, oh, I guess he's sick in bed. Like, that whole prank that you see often in cartoons is actually real and in the Bible. So he goes on the run. And he eventually makes his way to a bunch of priests. And the priests give him a sword. They give him some bread. The sword is not just any sword. It's actually the sword of Goliath. And he goes on his way. Saul hears, these priests have helped David. He slaughters them. The priests of God. The one who anointed Saul king. The God of Israel. His priests. And Saul slaughters them. His growing fear, his growing bitterness and paranoia that David would succeed him, that David would take out his family, just drives him to do insane things. He sends an army of 3,000 of Israelites' top troops after him. And they can't get him, and they can't get him. And it gets to a point in chapter 24 where David is actually hiding with a group of about 400 guys in a big cave. Saul and his men come by, and Saul's like, I need to go relieve myself. I'll let you figure out what that means. And he goes into a cave... To relieve himself and not paying attention. And Saul, uh, David's men are like, hey, David, that's King Saul. Go kill him. Like, just so easy. But here, here's a knife. So David starts creeping forward, knife in hand, ready to do it. But then he doesn't. Instead, he just slices off a bit of his robe and he comes back. And actually, he's so distraught. From just cutting off a piece of the robe of the Lord's anointed king. That he's like, I I could never kill him. He's the Lord's anointed. I can't do that. And Saul finishes his business and goes on his way. And David goes out from the cave and says, hey, Saul, I could have killed you. Know that. God put your life in my hands. I had power over you. I could have destroyed you, but I didn't. Who keeps telling you that I'm your enemy? Look, I have a piece of your robe. Proof I could have killed you. And actually, <clears throat> it says in <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Samuel 24, uh, starting in verse 16, it says, David, when he had finished speaking, Saul called back. Is that really you, my son David? And then he began to cry, and he said to David, You are a better man than I am. For if you have repaid my evil with good, yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me and you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? Then he even blesses him. He says, may the Lord reward you for the kindness that you have shown me today. Now I realize that you surely will be king. And the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. 
Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. And so now Saul is like, yes, David, you're going to be king. You're a way better man than I am. God's going to bless you. God's going to, this is going to be great for you. Just please don't kill my family. So it seems, it seems like Saul's in a good place now. It seems like he's repented. He's relented and he's good. It seems like this is fine. Except, except he's not. We don't know what was going on fully in Saul's heart. We do know he turns away from David and doesn't go after him in that moment. But his heart hasn't really changed. So if you grab a copy of God's Word, uh, either on your phones or an actual paper copy, and join me in 1 Samuel 26, is where we're going to be spending the remainder of our time together. So if you want to make that lovely sound of Bible pages turning, if you don't have a Bible and want one, there are some in the back. And if you don't have one in general and you want to keep one, accept it as a gift from us. We're going to be in chapter 26, starting in verse 1. It says, Now some men from Ziph came to Saul at Geba to tell him, David is hiding on the hill of Hilkiah, or excuse me, Hakilah, which overlooks Jeshimon. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's elite troops and went to hunt him down in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped along the road beside the hill of Hakilah near Jeshimon, where David was hiding. When David learned that Saul had come, seems Saul had come after him into the wilderness, he sent out spies to verify the report of Saul's arrival. So David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around. And Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, they were sleeping inside of a ring formed by slumbering warriors. Who will volunteer to go there with me? All right, so what's going on? Once again, Saul's going after David. Once again, Saul is easily exposed. He's sound asleep. All of his men, sound asleep. So David's like, hey, who's going to come with me? We're going to go into this camp. Now, even sound asleep, it's still a risky move. What if they wake up, right? I mean, still a little bit of a risky thing. These are 3,000 of Israelites' uh, strongest soldiers. And so he asks Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai the son of Zariah, Jerob's brother, and I will go with you, Abishai says. So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep, with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. And Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. Verse 8, God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time. Abishai whispered to David, Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike him twice. How tempting would that be? This is a man who at this point has tried to kill David at least a dozen times. Completely defenseless. Weapon provided right there, right at his head. David doesn't even have to do it. The guy who's with him is like, hey, just give me the spear. I'll just, just stab real quick. I won't, just a second, it'll be done. How tempting would that be? How many of us, and I'm not saying that you're wanting to commit murder, I'm not going that far, but how many of us, if we had a moment that we could just make a problem, that biggest thorn in your flesh, that biggest issue, we could just make that problem disappear forever. That person is always frustrating you. That one is always making you angry. We could just... How many of us would take advantage of that? Probably a lot of us. How tempting would that be to just take the matter into your own hands? But notice David's response. Look at verse 9. 
No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday. Or he will die of old age or in battle. Basically, David is saying this. He's like, absolutely not. I'm not taking this into my own hands. This is up to God. God's going to do what he's going to do with this. And so if you're uh, one who takes notes in that uh, bl- uh, paper that you have in your bulletins, there, the first blanks would be like this. Uh, we must choose to trust in God's justice. Not our own. Right? It's tempting to trust in our own. It's tempting for us to want to take things into our own hands. But truthfully, to try and take matters into your own hands is nothing short of arrogance. God is the one who's in control. God is the one who's sovereign. God is the one who promises that he will bring about justice. So the question becomes, <clears throat> becomes loved ones, do we trust that? Do we trust that God actually has this in hand? Or do we feel the need to step up and do things ourselves? Basically, God I'll take this one. I don't really trust you're going to do what needs to be done with this person. I'm going to take this one. I'm going to get my vengeance. I'm going to get my my justice. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Deuteronomy 32, 35. It says, I will take revenge I will pay them back in due time. Their feet will slip. Their day of disaster will come and they, and their destiny will overtake them. Indeed, the Lord will give justice to his people. God is going to bring justice. That passage we just read is actually quoted later in Hebrews. This is something we see throughout scripture. God is in control. God is in control. God will take care of it. God will take care of it. Now, that being said, I'm not saying that Police shouldn't be doing their job or that the justice system shouldn't be doing its job, right? These are systems that are in place to, to create justice, to establish justice, and that's fine. I'm saying we don't need to take things into our own hands. Now, in this case, it's literally a life or death situation. But what about in your case? How easy is it for us to try and take matters into our own hands and, you know what? I'm, I don't like this person. I don't like what they do. I'm just going to badmouth them. I'm going to tell everyone, make sure everyone knows all of this person's weaknesses, all of this person's failures, and maybe if there's not enough of them, maybe I'll make up a few. How easy is it for us to try and take things into our own hands? To try and manipulate for our results that we want with someone or the situation. We trust with God. Someone comes after you, If someone is attacking you, your response as a loved one of God is not to lash back, but to trust that God's got this, that God's got you. Is that easy? Absolutely not. When someone comes after me, my first instinct is, let's go. When someone comes after my family, (laughs) even more so. However, justice belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It belongs to him. And so David is looking at the situation. He's like, but, I I mean, I could. But God's got it. I don't know if he's going to die in battle. I don't know if he's going to die of old age. Either way, God is going to bring his justice here. 
And so, loved ones, the question is, do we trust that God is going to do that? Or do we feel the need to try and take things into our own hands? Because as someone who follows God, if you claim to follow God, then guess what? That means this too. We say we trust God with our eternities. But we don't trust him with our troubles and our issues right here on earth. We say we trust him to take care of all of our sin. But do we actually trust him with this? How can we say we trust him for our salvation if we're not willing to say, God, I will trust you in this circumstance. I will let this be in your hands. Well, truth is because we're afraid what the results aren't what we want. What if God doesn't do what I think he should do? Think of the story of Jonah, right? This is what Jonah is most famous for. You have the city of Nineveh. Well, probably most famous for the whale piece. But you have the city of Nineveh. And God says, go and preach to them. Proclaim to them a repentance. And Jonah's like, no. And he runs away. He tries to go as far away as he can, the opposite direction. And God's like, oh, not happening. Takes him, brings him fairly forcibly into Nineveh. And he proclaims, repent, or in 40 days the city will be destroyed. Shortest sermon in the Bible. Whole city has repentance. From the king to the lowest of servants, everyone through the city repents. And Dave, or Dave, Jonah goes out. And he sits on a hillside. And he's like, all right, it's a pretty good spot. And he waits. And he waits for God to destroy the city. And when God doesn't, Jonah gets mad. He's like, see God, this is why I didn't want to go. I wanted you to destroy them. I didn't want them to repent. Now we sit here and we think, oh, that's so evil, Jonah, my my word. But think about it. Think about it. How many of you, for the people in your life, do you want God to just smack them? Versus how many of you pray for God's mercy? How many of you pray that God would bring that person to repentance? That that person would be someone whose life is forever altered by the grace of God? That's not typically what we do as humans. We typically want our justice because like, hey, hey, I'm patient and that's a good thing. We're going to get more to that here in a bit. But just know, loved ones, that God is a God who absolutely will execute justice. It says in Exodus 34, 7, in Exodus 34, 7, it says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And then he says this, but I do not excuse the guilty. Look, God's got this. He sees what's happening. He sees what you're going through. And he's got it. I promise you he does. If you'll uh, look at the text, we're going to move forward. Uh, excuse me, First Samuel. I'm going to start with verse 11. It says, And the Lord, fo- the Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. But take his spear and the jug of water beside his head. And then let's get out of here. So David took the spear and the jug of water that were near Saul's head. And then he and Abishai got away without anyone seeing them or even waking up because the Lord had put Saul's men into a deep sleep. Notice that. David had the chance. God even's like, you want to take it? I'm going to give it to you. You can take it. There is no more perfect setup. But even still, David's like, no, no, no. 
God, I'm not taking this in my own hands. This is your thing. I'm not going to seek my justice. I'm seeking yours. In verse 13, David climbed the hill opposite the camp until he was at a safe distance. Then he shouted down to the soldiers and to Abner, son of Ner, wake up, Abner! Who is it? Abner demanded. Well, Abner, you are a great man, aren't you? David taunted. Where in all Israel is there anyone as mighty? So why haven't you guarded your master, the king, when someone came to kill him? That's kind of a big whoo Verse 16. This isn't good. This isn't good at all. I swear by the Lord that you and your men deserve to die because you failed to protect your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around. Where is the king's spear and the jug of water that were beside his head? Now, this is cool. Saul recognized David's voice and calls out to him. Is that you, my son, David? My son. Now, technically, yes, he's at this point David, uh, Saul's son-in-law. But he's been, he spent the last several years trying to kill him. And his response to David is, is that you, my son? Wow. So that keeps going on and David replies, yes, my Lord, the king, why are you chasing me? What have I done? What is my crime? But now let my Lord, the king, listen to his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept my offering. But if this is simply a human scheme, then may those involved be cursed by the Lord. For they have driven me from my home so I can no longer live among the Lord's people. And they have said, go worship pagan gods. So here's our next thing. Notice David's response. Basically, it's this. When the hard times come, you place yourself in God's hands. That's your next blank there. When the hard times come, you place yourself in God's hands. That's what he's doing. He's like, look, I am standing before God. If God has sent you after me, fine. I'll repent. I'll offer sacrifices to God. We'll take care of this. But if this is just other people, then God, deal with it. He just puts himself in God's hands. Now, that could be a scary place to be, right? Because we know what our plans are. We don't necessarily know what God's are. And that can be terrifying, because what if God's plans mean I get uncomfortable? What if God's plans mean things that I don't want it to mean? What? You place yourself in his hands, not your own. One of the things that I always find funny in evangelism is a fairly common thing that people do uh, in evangelism is they try to tell someone, hey, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. And I get why we say that. And I get what we mean by that. But the thing that we don't often understand when we use that is they're thinking, oh, I have a wonderful plan for me too. God's going to do what I want him to do. I mean, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying God's going to do everything you want. God's going to make your life perfect. That's not what we say when we say that. But often that's how people take it. It's like, I've got a plan too. And even Christians. God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, I bet it lines up with my plan perfectly for my life. Well, usually it doesn't. But loved ones, I have a feeling that God kind of knows what he's doing. The one who spoke a universe into existence. The one who handcrafted you, breathed life into you. When he says he's got it, when he says he knows what he's doing, I think we can trust that. But it's scary, and I'm not going to deny that it is scary. There will be times, if you follow God faithfully, there will be times. It's not an if, it's a when. 
He will take you to places that you don't really want to go. And he will bring you through things that you don't want to walk through. God never promises you when you come to him, he never promises you an easy life. He promises you, I will be with you through every step of it. David is a man for God's own heart, anointed king of Israel, and his life is far from easy. He's spending years on the run. He's not with his family. He's not with his wife. And actually, at this point in the story, Saul even took his wife and married her off to someone else. David's life's not easy. Far from it. David has a thousand reasons to be filled with fury against Saul. But yet the response of the man for God's own heart is, Hey, I stand before God. And if God is sending you after me, then fine, I, I stand here and I'll offer sacrifices and offerings to God. I'll basically say I'm going to repent of whatever I've done. However, if this is just people, then God, do something. It's basically what he's saying. Is that our response? When we find ourselves faced with these things, God, it's you, it's you, it's you. It's not easy by any means. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do. And he will show you the path to take. He knows what he's doing. So, then what are we supposed to do? If we're not supposed to get our vengeance, if we're not supposed to enact our, our own plans, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's take a look. Let's see what David does. If you join me, uh, verse 20. It says, For un- must I die on foreign soil, far from the presence of the Lord? Why has the king of Israel come out to search for a single flea? Why does he hunt me down like a partridge on the mountains? Then Saul confessed, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you, for you valued my life today. I have been a fool and very, very wrong. This is what David does. He shows mercy. He shows forgiveness and he shows mercy. And what is the result? Now, we don't know. This is actually the last time that David and Saul see each other. So we don't know for sure, is this real repentance? We we don't know. But we do know at this point, Saul actually relents. He doesn't come after David. And he says, you know, you valued my life. I've been very, very wrong. The word confession, when we use the word confess, it doesn't mean to just say out loud something you've done. It means to agree with, to say the same thing as. So when we confess our sin, we're saying, God, I agree with you about my sin. And so this is what Saul's doing. He's like, I've been very, very wrong. So what is the result here? If it's a genuine repentance or not, Scripture doesn't make that clear, doesn't tell us. What David does is he shows mercy. When attacked, this is your next thing, when attacked, show mercy and forgiveness. But that's not what I want to do. We show patience, we show mercy, we offer that forgiveness, but that's not what I want to do. I want to hold on to my grudge. How often is that our choice? Far, far too often. What are we supposed to do in this case? Um, Well, we give them mercy. Why? For God's glory. For God's glory is the ultimate reason. And secondly, because our hope is that they repent. 
What more glorious ending to a story than if the one coming after you actually comes to repentance and comes to salvation? What more glorious end for a story? But, 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 uh, but, but you don't know what I've been through. You're right, I don't. You don't know what she said. I don't. You don't know how he abused. You're right, I don't. But I do know that our God does. And I do know that our own sin was enough that God went to the cross, Christ went to the cross to pay for our sin. To bring that forgiveness. Now God, he didn't need to show patience. He could have wiped out the entirety of the world and destroyed sin, but chose patience instead. He didn't need to send Christ and for there to be grace and mercy poured out of the cross. These things didn't need to happen, but yet they did because he chose to bring salvation through Christ. So why would he do this? Why is he patient with us? It actually... Excuse me. Why is he patient with us? It says in Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you not see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? Because in 1 Timothy 2, 4, it says that God desires for all to come to repentance. Now let me ask you. David is a man after God's own heart. Are you a man or woman after God's own heart? Because if you are, then part of your heart is that all would come to repentance. Yes, even that one person. That all would come to repentance. That is why. Because how great a glory is displayed by God when that heart that is so hard and so abusive turns And now instead of speaking vile and curses, speaks praise and worship to the king who made him. We trust in God. We let it be in his hands. Because think about what he's done for you. Romans 5, 8 and 10 tells us, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. While we were still sinners, verse 10 says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his Son. While we were still his enemies. His enemies. When we talk about a peace with God, loved ones, understand what that means. Don't think like, oh, I had a little bit of a quarrel with someone and now we're good. No, think World War II, Axis and Allies, massive war, spiritual warfare. You're on the wrong side. And then Christ dies in your place, taking your sin, then extending forgiveness, extending grace, extending mercy. By God's grace, we receive it. Now there's a peace with God. We're not enemies anymore. We're now we're on the same side. I now fight for God instead of against God. That was you, if you know God. That was me. So those in your life who have wronged you, and I'm not saying this lightly, because I know some of us in this room have gone through some very, very hard things and have been wronged in very grievous ways. But if God can forgive 
us. How can we not offer that forgiveness? But you don't know. You're right, I don't know. But what I do know is that we serve a God whose power is greater than the darkest of sin, whose power to heal and restore is greater than the most shattered of people. I know that we serve a God who is big enough to handle it, to handle you, to handle them. But it's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Some of us will be struggling to forgive, struggling to surrender in forgiveness for a while. I'm not saying that this is a simple thing where I'm going to say I forgive them and then it's all done. I get it. Some wounds run deep. But I know that our God is a healer who's able to take care of that. So what do we do? We choose to forgive. And then we choose to forgive again. And we continue to choose to forgive and surrender to God until finally it's released and it's let go. Choose to forgive. To extend that mercy. But they don't deserve. You're right. That's why it's called mercy. You don't deserve either. Mercy is when you do not get the bad things that you deserve. You're right. They don't deserve your forgiveness. You're right. They don't deserve your mercy. But that's why it's called mercy. And you don't deserve the forgiveness and mercy of God. But that is the awesome thing of God. And you, loved ones, are supposed to represent Christ on the earth. To have a heart after God means you put this thing called justice, this thing that we, we put this in his hands. And it means that we extend the forgiveness and mercy that we so quickly pull in. No, 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 we pan that out. Is it easy? No, by no means. So actually, in your bulletins, um, if you grab the bulletin, there are uh, the message notes, and attached to the message notes are pieces of paper about this size. Well, exactly this size. I'm going to ask you to do something with these in a minute here. As we've been talking about this mercy and this forgiveness thing, I want us to understand something very important. This, this idea of extending forgiveness, of extending mercy to someone, we do it for two reasons. One, because God's done it for us. And if we truly, God, I'm grateful for what you've done. God, I don't deserve it. I know I don't, but I'm so grateful for it. If that is your heart, then how could we possibly not give it to someone else? How can we possibly not give it to someone else? We thank God for the forgiveness he gives us. We thank God for his mercy. And you know what? When we do that, when we thank him for his mercy, also when we extend that mercy, do you realize that that worships God? That is worship to God? Worship is not a song. Worship is not a church service. Worship is when you ascribe value and worth to something. Now, we do that with song. We do that with a message. We do that with prayer. We do that through a hundred things. But when we are obedient to say, God, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but you've given it to me anyway. And so I'm so grateful for that. And then God, because I am grateful for what you have done, because I receive that and I'm so thankful for that, I am then going to, God, it's not easy, but I'm going to send that, extend that out to someone else. Unforgiveness leads to bitterness. 
Bitterness leads to paranoia and destruction and chaos. Whereas forgiveness, forgiveness leads to healing. And healing leads to restoration. And restoration leads to peace. It's an amazing thing of what our God does. And how he can take the most broken and heal it. So here's what I want you to do with these. There's pens uh, in the aisle there. And if you don't have one of these, you didn't grab a bulletin, we do have extras. You can just raise your hand and someone will come by and get you one. Um, but here's what I want you to do with this. On it, I want you to write a note thanking God for what he has done. Thanking God for the forgiveness that you have. We don't spend enough time thanking him for his mercy. Let's take some time writing a note to God for that. But then also, on the bottom of it, back of it, wherever, write a name. A name of that person that you need to let go, that you need to forgive, you need to release from the anger and the bitterness that you're holding on to. And then I want you to take it, fold it in your hands, and I want you to pray over it. And when you're ready, we have these bowls of water here in the front. You can take it and place it into the water. And then just stir stir it away into the water. And it will dissolve away. This is a symbol, this is a picture. Doing this doesn't mean everything's instantly good and healthy, but this is a symbol and a picture of saying, God, I want to be faithful. I want to be a person who is after your heart, even when it's hard. And so I'm going to take this as a step in that direction. While we're doing this, uh, worship team is going to be playing a song for us. And in a bit, I'll come back up and we'll continue our service. But take some time and do that now.
David was constantly, constantly having to let go of the wrongs against him. We'll see more of this as his story continues as we go on through his life. This is just several examples from his earlier days, even before he reigned on the throne. There's more coming. If you look with me in the text, starting in verse 21, it says, Then Saul, excuse me, not 21, 22, says, Here is your spear, O king. David replied, 
Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord gives his own reward for doing good and being loyal. And I refuse to kill you, even when the Lord placed you in my power. For you're the Lord's anointed one. Now may the Lord value my life, even as I have valued yours today. May he rescue me from my troubles. Because ultimately, in the end, David is trusting the results to God. And this is the last thing here. No matter the results, God is going to reward those who are faithful to him. No matter the results, God is going to reward those faithful to him. He's trusting. He's like, hey, I valued your life. I'm going to trust that God's going to do value mine. We don't know the results. We don't know what's going to happen. If we forgive, if we extend that mercy, they may come to repentance. Maybe instantly, maybe decades later. We don't know what's going to happen. For all we know, they may spit in our face and never accept it. But that's not on you. That's on them. What is on you is to be faithful to God and trust God that you will reward those who are faithful to you. David's like, I've spared your life. I valued yours. God, value mine. God's going to reward. It says in Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. James 1, 2, or 1, 12, it says, God bless those who patiently endure the testing and the temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Ephesians 6, 8 tells us the Lord will reward each of us for the good that we do. There's so many verses we could go through. God will reward those who live faithfully to him. So I'm telling you, it doesn't matter the results you see on this earth. Now, I understand some results are happier and some are harder for us to handle. But regardless of the results on earth, there is results in heaven of God blessing those who follow him. And I don't know about you, but if I want to be a man for God's own heart, if you want to be a man and woman after God's own heart, I would suggest to you that means we live for eternity and not for now. We don't need the reward now. Now, sometimes is he blessed now? Yes. But what matters more? The fact that our God and King, when we reach the end, will look upon your life and say, you were someone who pursued my heart and there is blessing and there's reward that I want to give to you because of your faithfulness and I love you. Does that matter more to us? Or to our plans? our desires on earth, which, which matters more. So as the story wraps up in verse 25, it says, And Saul said to David, Blessings on you, my son David. You will do many heroic deeds, and you will surely succeed. And David went away, and Saul returned home. Again, did Saul repent? We don't fully know. We know he makes some really bad choices in coming chapters that result in his own death. This is the last time they meet. The last time they see each other. So we don't fully know. It seems as though he's finally resigned himself to the reality that this David, the one who's been faithful to God, God is going to secure his throne forever. And he will.
So as we prepare to walk away, if you leave and you remember nothing else, here's the takeaway. We trust in God for his justice, not ourselves. And because we trust that God will take care of it, we don't need to enact our vengeance. We don't need to enact our bitterness, but rather we can let that go and choose to forgive. Now, some of you may still be holding that paper, and that's fine. Or maybe we have some extra as well that if you wanted to take one home, by all means, because that's not something that I want you to feel like you have to rush. Hold on to that and pray over it. And when you're ready to let that go, God, I want this in your hands and not mine. Then you can do that at home or wherever you are. Because ultimately we give this to God and we need to be people who pray for the repentance, the restoration, not just for ourselves. Yes, we pray for our own repentance, but for those around us, those who have wronged us, we pray for God's mercy that God would bring them to salvation. Or if they're saved, perhaps they're a brother or sister in Christ, right? And sometimes that's worse. You're supposed to be a Christian! Sometimes that's worse and hurts more. So let's pray that God would bring repentance there. That he would bring restoration because in the family of Christ, we're not supposed to be in disunity. We're not supposed to be at odds. We're not supposed to be quarreling and fighting and dissension and factions. And all that's supposed to be gone in the church. So we pray for repentance and restoration of relationship. Because God has given us repentance and God has restored our relationship with him. So if you'll pray with me, we'll close uh, down this time and move on to the next part of our service. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you are the one who brings about all repentance. You're the one who brings about all joy, all mercy, all grace. It's from you. So God, I pray that you would cause us to be a people who run after your heart extend the forgiveness and mercy that we know to others. We thank you in Jesus' name.